Hey, good evening, Collective Church. Pastor Ryan here. I want to thank you for taking some time out of your Friday evening as we remember and reflect on and meditate on the death of Jesus Christ and its importance and value and worth even 2,000 years later. This evening is going to be a little bit different than a normal Sunday gathering. Uh, What we're going to be doing is just reading through Matthew's account of the death of Jesus and just reflecting on its meaning for us today. We're also going to take some time in silence and just praying a prayer of confession for our sin. We're also going to be ending our time together by observing communion. And so if you have bread and wine or juice, um, we'd have those ready and available towards the end of our gathering. And so, like I said, we're going to be in Matthew, um, just meditating on his account of the death of Jesus. And so we'll be in chapter 27, beginning in verse 11. Uh, Tonight, feel free to follow along in the Bible. I'm just going to read it. If you would, that would work better for you just to listen to the narrative read. Um, Feel free to do that as well. But let's look at verse 11. Now, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, so are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, then he gave no answer. But Pilate said to him, do you not hear? Do you not hear how many things they're testifying against you? But he, that being Jesus, gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. For the past three years, Jesus of Nazareth had wandered the Galilean countryside, proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. As the herald of the kingdom, many wondered what Jesus' role would be in this coming kingdom. Was he going to be just another uh, prophet heralding and announcing that it was coming? It seemed like he was definitely announcing it, but also seemed to have a much more important role in it. For his closest disciples and followers, it seemed as though Jesus was more than the prophet, but was himself the king of this coming kingdom. But it wasn't only Jesus' friends and followers that saw him as a would-be king and messiah. No, it was also. It was also the government and religious leaders. But for them, this was not good news. You see, the last thing Israel needed, specifically the city of Jerusalem, needed right now was some homeless lunatic claiming to be one with the God of Israel and the promised messiah from the line of David making a mess of the temple. This whole thing would just pull apart a a, a political system that was already on edge. No, Jesus needed to be dealt with. And so these religious leaders paid off one of Jesus's disciples, Judas, who told them when and where to be for Jesus's arrest. And now here in verse 11 through 14, what we just read, Jesus has now undergone questioning, affirming himself as the king of the Jews and giving no defense against any of the claims or testimonies of the crowd. The question we're going to be considering this Good Friday is this. If Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, what sort of king is he? How does he rule and reign? And how is this new kingdom of God inaugurated? And how are new citizens made? 2,000 years ago, Jesus was crowned. Crowned, paraded, lifted up, and exalted, and enthroned as king. But what we see on Good Friday is the inverse, this reversal, the great paradox of his kingship, unlike any other, is that Jesus is the king who became a criminal. Let's continue reading in verse 15. Now, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release from the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. 
And then they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Okay, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ or Messiah. For he knew that it was actually out of envy that they had delivered Jesus up in the first place. Besides the fact, even when he was sitting on his judgment seat, his wife had sent word to him. She said, have nothing to do with that righteous man. I have suffered greatly because of him today. Now, the chief priests and the elders, they had persuaded and worked their way through the crowd to ensure they asked for Barabbas so that they might destroy Jesus. And so the governor came out to the crowd and said to them again, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they cried out, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what should I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. Pilate began to, to try to debate and argue for this man's life. Why? What evil has he done? What does this man claim? And they shouted out all the more, let him be crucified. See, the reality is Jesus was innocent on all charges, blameless. Peter or Pilate knew this. I mean, he even had his wife had a nightmare to warn him of the fact. You see, from Pilate's perspective, this was all a giant miscarriage of justice. But honestly, what could this guy do? Incite a riot over one man? Luckily, Pilate remembered the long-running custom of allowing the people to free one prisoner each Passover weekend. Perhaps, just perhaps, setting Jesus, you know, next to the worst of the worst would wake this crowd up out of this stupor to see that the death penalty is not necessary in this man's case. Hopefully he could ensure this Jesus' freedom. So Pilate stood right before the crowd, and on his right he brought up Barabbas, this notorious prisoner, a bandit who had committed murder in the latest insurrection out in the wilderness, a criminal committed to overturning society and taking all that he could for himself along the way. He brought up on his left Jesus of Nazareth, this famous prophet, preacher, healer, who had wandered the Galilean countryside, calling the people of Israel to nonviolence, to peaceful living, to obedience to God and a celebration and following the scriptures, all while healing the sick, raising the dead, feeding the hungry. Here you had this king committed to establishing his kingdom. And unlike Barabbas, not what he could take, but what he could give was his driving motivation. Even with the odds seemingly stacked in Jesus' favor, the crowd just simply could not be swayed. They cried out together, set free Barabbas, crucify Jesus. He's too dangerous to live, one of them cried out. This kingdom he won't shut up about threatens our way of life. Yes, his inclusion of outsiders and women and sinners and prostitutes at his table is a step too far. You see, this man's blasphemed God. He's claimed to be one with him, speaking of the destruction of our temple. You see, behind all that hippie pacifism up there and the free handouts is a man intent on overturning our way of life. Our temple system, our safety, our city, our ladder to God. So give us Barabbas and damn that false Messiah. Pilate hung his head. The decision was made. There's nothing more he could do. The shackles slid off of Barabbas as he now rubbed his wrists and looked over his substitute, his fate now sealed. Electric chair, guillotine, firing squad, drawn and quartered, crucifixion, whatever it was, wasn't for him anymore. It was for that poor sucker from Nazareth. 
The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Tonight, on this Good Friday, we're going to acknowledge the reality that in our lives we are both the crowd and the criminal. We are both those who reject the kingship of Jesus and at the same time, we are those who are enshackled because of our sin. We are both perpetrators and victims. And so what we're going to do is just take some time in silence to come to God in prayer, to repent of our rejection of Jesus as our king, as we run off to, to do what we deem is right and wrong, and we run around in impatience and, and, and anger. And what the Bible refers to as sin is simply... A, a lack of receiving Jesus as our King. We're going to take time to think over the past week and year and our whole life and just ask God to forgive us for these things. Similarly, we're going to confess that like Barabbas, that we are enslaved, we are shackled into sin's power, not only asking for God to forgive us, but to save us. And so let's take some time in silence and just come to God in repentance and confession of sin. God, when it comes to being a citizen of your son's kingdom of love, I just find how difficult it is for me to give love. God, when love is described as being patient, I'm impatient, kind, I find myself as short, does not boast, I find myself as prideful and arrogant. God, I repent and we repent of the ways that we have rejected Jesus' kingship over us, that we have failed to obey his way of love. Instead, we have joined ourselves as faces in the crowd, crying out for the crucifixion of Jesus. Simultaneously, God, we acknowledge that like Barabbas, we have, in our sin and in our rejection of Jesus' kingship, we have run around and made a mess of our lives and in our world. And so, God, we need to be saved as much as we need to be forgiven. That there is a power at work in this world and in us that we need you to save us from. And God, we are grateful that 2,000 years ago, on that first Good Friday, that through your Son, that forgiveness and salvation was made. Help us to remember and to receive what was given for us 2,000 years ago tonight. Verse 27. So then, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. They gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him naked and put a scarlet robe on him. 
and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail to the king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took a reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe. They put on his own clothes and they led him away to crucify him. You see, at this point, the blameless, now criminal king was led away by the Roman guard in practice with crucifixion, was scourged by the guards repeatedly, whipped with bits of glass and metal and bone as they dug and tore into his flesh. He was stripped naked, ashamed and vulnerable and afraid. The Roman guard began to yell out and jest, Look at this king now. Someone get his highness his royal robes. He is adorned in this purple cape. The battalion is not nearly done with their work. He is no king without his crown. A soldier cries out as another presses into his scalp a crown of thorns. The king braces as his crown is set in place, piercing his head. He begins to have difficulty seeing the battalion through the blood dripping over his eyes. Hail to the king of the Jews, praise be to the Messiah, and long live the king, they cry out, bursting into laughter, as these soldiers spit on him. Others take the rod out of his hand and continue the abuse. Each strike of the rod against his head drives the thorns of his crown deeper into place. It's time, the commander opens the door and calls out as the battalion jumps to attention. They quickly throw his clothes back onto him. Each movement of this fabric now reopens and moves the crafted wounds through these bone, metal, and glass shards that have torn into him. And so they emerge from the room with their bloodied victim. But back in the room, in the place where the king stood just moments ago, there's blood, there's torn flesh, and tears, and vomit, and... The battalion spit. It all pools together. This metallic aroma of blood hangs in the air and with it, shame, fear, evil, abuse, and anger. See, in that moment, Jesus bore all of it. Not simply the battalion's abuse, but in the mystery of God's salvation, Ours as well. See, in this moment, Jesus becomes this all-open door to all of our sorrow, all of our suffering, all of our guilt, all of our despair, and all the horror. Jesus both receives our abuse and he joins us as the abused. Everything that cannot be escaped, Jesus turns to meet it and he claims it as his own. This is mine now, he is saying. And he embraces it with all that is in him. Each dark act, each dripping memory, as if it were something precious. As if it were a child tottering into her father's arms, he holds it close. But there is so much of this darkness for him to hold. So many injured children. So many locked rooms. So many bombs in public places, so much vicious zeal, so many bored teenagers at roadblocks, so many drunk girls at parties that someone thought they could have a little bit of fun with, so many children in cages, 
so many tear-soaked pillows, so many school shootings, so many jokes that went just a little bit too far, so many babies torn from their mothers, so many lingering, lustful looks, so much lonely anger, so much self-obsessed religion, so much world-ruining greed, so much sick ingenuity, so much bruised and burnt skin, so much pain, so much evil, so much suffering and guilt and fear and shame. The world that Jesus has come to claim claims him. It rocks Jesus round and it, and it drags him down. As the prophet Isaiah said years and years before Jesus, speaking of what he would do, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, he was pierced for our sin. He was crushed for our wrongdoing. Upon him was the abuse that has brought us peace and with his wounds we have now been healed. The Lord has laid on him the sin, the iniquity of us all. On this Friday in Jerusalem, Jesus is turning his bruised, bloodied face towards humanity and accepting everything that we've ever done and everything done to us. The doors of his heart have been wedged open wide and in rushes the whole venomous flood of vile and turning tides of cruelty and failure and secrets. Let me take that from you, he's pleading. Give it to me instead and let me carry it. Let me carry you, all of you. You see, I'm big enough. I'm wide enough for this. I'm not what you were told. I'm the friend who will never leave you. I'm the light that your shame cannot extinguish. I'm the bread that's been broken. I'm the blood that's been poured out. I'm the door when you thought there was just a wall. I'm the shepherd who's come to rescue my flock. I'm healing. I am healing and change and hope. I am what comes after all of your deserving. I'm a gift without cost. I am the way that God so loved the world. I'm the truth that you are more loved than you ever dared believe. I'm the life that you never thought possible. I am, I am, I am. Before the foundations of the world, he speaks, I am. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry Jesus' cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but Jesus tasted it and he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, They then divided his garments among them by casting lots, and they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. The two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. The walk to Golgotha was less than a mile from the governor's headquarters, but after Jesus had been whipped and beat and bloodied, after going through what he had gone through underneath the battalion, he just did not have the strength to make that trip carrying the crossbeam of his cross. And so the battalion grabbed some ordinary Joe, Simon, there in town for Passover, no one quite special, to drag this crossbeam through the street while behind him, Jesus walked. The feet that had walked on water tripped over themselves. The arms that had for years been feeding and caring for the hungry and poor that had healed the sick are now slamming against the pavement. The little boy 
held by Mary in a manger that first Christmas 33 years ago now falls repeatedly against the hard, hot Jerusalem road as consciousness fades in and out under the exhaustion of his pain. The the inauguration parade arrives to the place of the skull. And so Simon sets the crossbeam down as the battalion members fasten it to the beam that will exalt it up into the air. Meanwhile, other members of the battalion once again strip Jesus naked in front of now not just the uh, guard, but in front of all of the witnesses. The shame of this, the, the fear, the vulnerability. They walk him naked over to his cross like an abused animal about to finally be slaughtered and put out of its misery. No fight is made, just compliant, willing obedience. He is laid down on the cross. The soldier takes his right hand and pins it against the crossbeam, and with each pound of a hammer, he drives a dull and rusted spike deeper in between the skin, the muscle, and the bone. The king cries out in pain, trying to thrash but unable. Each slight move tears open this newly forged wound. The soldier now pulls his left hand, naturally tensing up against his body, out extended over the crossbeam. Taking this hand, he does the same to it. Tears begin to flow from the king's eyes. He cannot even comfort himself with his own hands. The soldier has one nail remaining. So he walks to Jesus' feet. His mode of transportation these past three years, the feet that carried good news of the arrival of the kingdom of God, are now driven through and pinned to a tree. This cross, adorned with its king, And a title to prove it is now hoisted up, lifted where all can see, exalted. Jesus looks over his shoulders to see on his right and left two criminals, his only remaining friends, as it were. The king of love was enthroned on his cross as he embraced and carried and paid for it, paid for it all, all of us. As those who passed by this crucified Jesus, they began to deride him, wagging their heads at him and saying, you who would destroy the temple and then rebuild it in three days, it it seems like it's time. Go ahead, save yourself. If you are truly the son of God, come on down from the cross. So also with the crowd, chief priests and the scribes and elders, everybody involved begins to mock Jesus saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. We'll all finally believe that he's the king and he's got the kingdom of God coming with him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires it. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified, they begin to revile him in the same way. You got a big talk, but now's the time. Show us. This image of Jesus on the cross, the cross is now assumed as a religious symbol that's seen regularly in jewelry and tattoos and shirts and bumper stickers, held as the symbol of Christianity. Though this is the sign of Christianity, our modern world and its use on just about everything has disinfected the cross of all of its shame, guilt, and honestly horror. At the time of Jesus' crucifixion was set apart for the low and despised individuals, not fit to live, not even human, as the Romans put it. Ancient Jewish historian Josephus called crucifixion the most wretched of deaths. Ancient philosopher Cicero, he pleaded with citizens not to speak of such a disgraceful thing as crucifixion. 
Regularly, those seeking to help us reestablish the weight of Jesus' death on the cross will compare it to the electric chair. But this does not work. This is too clean. The electric chair, the convicted is given too much honor. They're allowed to be away from the public eye. They're given preference over their last meal, a hood or a mask over their face for dignity's sake. And at the end of the day, it's quick and it's fast. But this does not match the cross of Jesus. The cross was messy and slow. It reveled in the pain that it brought to its victim, perfecting how to make someone suffer for as long as possible. It was not simply death. It was degradation. It was dehumanization. It was damnation in the sight of the people. It was honestly a form of advertisement. As you would walk by and see those crucified, you'd be saying, this person is the scum of the earth, not fit to live, not even human, more of an insect than a person. The crucified wretch pinned up like a specimen, not even of the same species. That poor soul left dangling like an animal. See, this way of death for Jesus, this is not the assassination of someone valued. It's not a bullet or bomb or a firing squad. It's not even a hanging. It's an ancient Palestinian lynching. It's the way people treat people who they deem as not people. And you may look back in horror, but this is not some ancient reality. But it is the beastly subhuman nature of each of us and how we often treat one another. How we treat those whose lives and souls and personhood and value as less than. The lynchings of the American South, the gas chambers of Auschwitz, the uh, Stalin's gulag, the killing fields of Cambodia, the abortion clinics of the modern world, the suicides of LGBTQ teenagers. All of this stems from the hatred of the heart that cries out, this is what we do to those who are not human. We will mock you as we kill you, or we will bully you and abuse you until you do it for us. Jesus, in his cross, allowed himself to become treated as less than human, as scum, As all of the evil impulses and the power of humanity came to focus on him, forsaken by humanity, mocked, ridiculed, tortured, less than human, unlovable, and forgotten. The scandal of the cross is that we worship this one as king. The king who became nothing, who became a joke, who became foolishness and stupidity. Dating back to the first century, the Romans would regard Christians as those who worship that jackass on a cross. Good Friday is when we remember Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who endured the cross, bearing the shame, receiving all that humanity had to give and take, that he might give us all that he is. He was the king forsaken by humanity so that he might forgive humanity. He was cut off so that we might be brought in. Now, now from the sixth hour, There was a darkness over all the land up until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling out to Elijah. And one of them ran up and and took a sponge. They filled it with sour wine and they put it on a reed and they give it for him to drink. But others called for him to bring it down. Wait, wait, wait. Let's see if Elijah's actually going to show up. 
Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. He yielded up his spirit. The whole point of crucifixion was to label an individual as forsaken by humanity. Once again, he's not one of us. But this was not the final step of Jesus' enthronement. As darkness fell over the land, Jesus experienced a pain unlike anything he had felt thus far, as he was forsaken by God. In this moment, the Father turned his face away from the Son, his personal presence gone, the relationship carried from eternity past. Partners in creation, in redemption, in crafting this plan of salvation, now takes the final step as the Father turns from the Son so that Jesus might truly carry not only all that we've done and what has been done to us, but so that he might carry all that we deserve to be forsaken by God. And this breaks Jesus like he has not yet. Sobbing uncontrollably through the pain of the tearing of his flesh, the abuse of the soldiers, the mocking of the people, but none of it can compare to what he's experienced now and in this moment. He's been silent in this story from the last time he spoke with Pilate, but now he finally breaks and he screams out in agony in this Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lemma sebaktani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is God, where are you right now? Would you be not far from me? I'm alone. The king is forsaken by God and the criminal is left to die. The father turns his face away. He cries out that, that my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the opening words to Psalm 22. Even in his death, he is, all he can speak are words of scripture. But even in the midst of saying this, what what did he say? The crowd calls out. That Eli, Eli, sounds like he's calling for Elijah. But some in the crowd see that the end is near and even they break with pity as one gives sour wine to him. Others mock, not so fast. Maybe Elijah's actually on his way. It says that Jesus cried out again in John's gospel. He records this cry as Jesus saying, it is finished. The enthronement is complete. The king has become a criminal. The living God has become a dead man, abused and mocked, ashamed and marred, forsaken by man, forsaken by the Father. He who knew no sin has become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And with that cry, he exhales his last. The shuddering nerves, the struggling for breath, the tears, they all stop. And his body hangs limp in the Jerusalem countryside. The air is still. The crowd finally falls silent. This king is dead. His blood poured out. His body crushed. Forsaken by God and by man. Cursed on a tree. And dead. At this time, if you have the bread and cup, we're going to receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. As Good Friday in doing this being for us. His death as a criminal is what set me free. He was forsaken so that I might be adopted. He was killed so that I might live. The work is accomplished and it is finished. Though most of Jesus' disciples fled in fear for their own lives, at Jesus' arrest, they were now during all of this hiding throughout the city. At the foot of the cross stood some of the women who were closest to Jesus through his ministry. And in John's gospel, he records that he too was there. 
Not even 24 hours ago, John and these women had been with Jesus and the other disciples celebrating Passover, going for an evening prayer walk as they often did. And now his rabbi, his friend and master, his hope hung dead and naked on a cross. As John stared in horror, he remembered the words of Jesus at dinner that night where he lifted up and said, this is my body broken for you as he broke a loaf of the bread and then passed it among his disciples. And so now we're going to together eat the bread and remember Jesus's body broken for our sin. John continued to watch in horror as a Roman centurion took a spear and thrust it into this new corpse's side to ensure its death. As John watched the mix of blood and water pour from his side, he remembered again. The hands now hailed to this tree, lifting up a cup of wine at the dinner table. As Jesus said, this is my blood, my blood of the covenant, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so now... Let's drink from the cup and remember his body, not only broken, but his blood shed as this new covenant promise and the forgiveness of sins. As the Apostle Paul wrote, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so let's finish our time together in verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. And when the centurion and those were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw this earthquake and what had taken place, they were filled with awe and they said, truly, this was the son of God. Marvelous mystery. Behold, the glory and horror of Good Friday. He who hung the earth is hanging. He who fixed the heavens in place has been fixed in place. He who fastened the foundations of the universe has been fastened on a tree. The master has been profaned. God has been murdered. The king has been destroyed by his own people. God is God forsaken. Though we did not tremble in fear, the earth shook in terror. Though we did not tear our garments in pain, God tore his veil in anguish. Truly, truly, this is the Son of God. This is our sacrifice. This is our hope. This is our King. And Sunday's coming. I'll see you then.